If you want to turn in your Bibles to uh, Song, of Sol- Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, depending on your translation, chapter 5, we're going to be in verse 2, and you're going to want to follow along. Like, you know, you're going to want to have that Bible in front of you, so open up your paper copy, pull your phone out, get your Bible app out, and just follow along as we're reading so you can keep up with us. I love having people's heads down in their Bibles, checking out whether what the pastor actually says is actually true. It's actually in the scriptures, so you should be checking up on your pastor. Don't just take it for granted. Get your head in your Bible and be listening along. So, uh, Song of Solomon, um, chapter 5, verse 2, and I'm going to be reading through verse 8. I slept, but my heart was awake, a sound. My beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? My beloved put his hand on the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. I rose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh and the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so we are, if you hadn't noticed, in the midst of a series on... Uh, the Song of Song, um, it's, you know, the unofficial start of summer here in West Michigan. The flowers are blossoming, the birds are singing, and we get to talk about love. I mean, this, what could be better, right? What better topic to be diving into in the midst of this beautiful uh, spring season here? Uh, and the song, as we have already uh, mentioned, explores the full spectrum of romantic desire. Um, And so Josh showed us that the Bible isn't shy when it comes to sex and romance, right? The Bible has things to say about the beauties of romantic desire and how we share it together. Last week, Mark showed us the beauties of marriage at the center of the song and how how beautiful marriage is as the uh, design that God has for us to enjoy all the delights and all the pleasures of romantic love. And this morning, I get to explore maybe a slightly more off-topic, the fickleness of love, right? <laughs> right? The fact that the unpredictability of love, the changeableness of love, the way our desires are, we feel one way one moment, we feel one way the next, right? How romantic love ebbs and flows, it comes and goes in our lives. It's not reliable just when we think that we've latched onto it and we've dialed it in and we're at the heights of ecstasy, right? It all just escapes us and is fleeting. So last Sunday, we left our lovers in the garden of love. This week, these same two lovers are crossing like two ships in the night, which gives us an opportunity to explore both the tragedy and comedy of love. Remember, marriage has its moments of ecstasy, but also its moments of agony, and our poet explores the full range of these romantic desires. He's not just simply casting a beautiful image for sex and romance and and marriage, but he also gets into the realities of romantic love. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at the fickleness of love, right? How unstable it can be. 
uh, how changeable it can be. Uh, the secret of love in chapter 5, 9 through 16. And we're going to close, of course, because we're in the song with the ecstasies uh, of love. And my aim for this morning's sermon is that we would see the fickleness of romantic love as an opportunity to build the kind of friendship that would sustain and strengthen marital love over the long haul, right? My aim for this morning's sermon, we'd see the fickleness of romantic love as an opportunity to build the kind of friendship that would sustain and strengthen marital love over the long haul. And so let's pray as we dive in this morning that God might be pleased to do that here in our midst. And so, Father, we come this morning recognizing uh, that there are so many distractions, so many disruptions, so many interruptions in our lives and our own emotions are fleeting and they're fickle and they come and they go and they change. Um, God, and so would you help us to build a firmer foundation this morning? Uh, Would you help us to build beautiful friendships in our marriage? And would those friendships uh, in marriage be signposts to something even greater? And so would you come this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit? Would you speak to your people, we pray, all for the glory of your great name? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we are going to be starting this morning with uh, the fickleness uh, of love. In the opening text that I just read for you, if you were following along with it, let me give you a recount the story uh, blow by blow. Uh, Like a Shakespearean tragedy, these opening lines of chapter 5 show us two lovers who long for each other but can't seem to get together, right? That's what's happening here in the narrative. Right in our text, our heroine awakens to a sound. It's her beloved knocking at the door. He's been out late in the cold of the night, and he wants to come home to the warmth of his lover. It's this beautiful moment, right? But she's just gotten into bed. She's just gotten comfortable. She's drifting off to sleep, and so... She doesn't want to be bothered, right? You know how this goes, right? Sometimes, right? You're just like, I'm just not in the mood uh, for love tonight here. Um, But in, in, of course, as the tragedy unfolds in verses 4 and 5, she warms up to the idea, but by the time she finally gets to the door, he has already left, and she is devastated. And so, like any sane person would do, right? She, She wanders out into the city in a desperate search to find him and then gets beat up by the watchman. And, you know, who thinks she's like some, you know, woman of ill repute wandering around the city, scantily clad with a veil on. And like, who is this woman? And what is wrong with her? Finally, in desperation, in verse eight, she cries out to the daughters of Jerusalem, please tell me, please tell my beloved that I'm sick with love. Right, And so this is a classic sequence, I would say, in love, replayed countless times by countless couples, and our poet captures it perfectly, right? Just when one is in the mood, the other is not. And when the other's in the mood, the other one has moved on. If you've been married for any length of time, you know what I'm talking about, right? Which requires a sense of humor in marriage, right? If you don't laugh, you're probably going to cry uh, at the... <laughs> at the uh, at the fickleness of love, how it comes and goes at the most unpredictable and unhelpful sort of times. Now, stereotypically, wives are often blamed, right, for being tired or or having a headache, you know, but my wife always likes to remind me that men can be just as easily preoccupied, right, by their hobbies and work and miss out on the opportunities for intimacy, right? That's probably because as a young seminary student trying to prove that I was the smartest guy on the campus, 
I would get into the zone with homework and assignments and papers and being a teaching assistant for systematic theology and miss out on some of those wonderful opportunities for intimacy early in my marriage. I was just too busy to be interrupted, too important, right? Too preoccupied with my great theological labors, doing the Lord's work, right? To uh, appreciate all the joys that God had for me in marriage. I could still remember one of the librarians telling me, that books can't keep you warm at night. That was one of those great lines. It stuck with me, you know? Apparently, I had to be counseled by the, uh, the librarians, which tells you something about how nerdy I was in seminary. Apparently, I needed a little help embracing the uh, delightful distractions of the married life. Um, now, I know that's probably not your issue as you sitting there this morning laughing at your pastor, uh, but we all have things that right, distract us right, from the delights of love, right? whether it's work or kids or just sheer ex- exhaustion, right? Any, any parents in the house who are in that phase of like, you make it through the marriage, we got the kids to bed, and then you just fall asleep right there on the spot, right? Too often, um, and particularly in that very busy season of life where you have young children, right? We can just be like two ships passing in the night. And uh, if we aren't able to laugh about it, we're, we will probably, as I already said, probably cry, right? Because if it's maddening, it's tragic, and it's often humorous all at the same time. What do we do with these crazy feelings of ours. Uh, and the first thing I would suggest as we're confronted with the fickleness of love this morning is we need to adjust our expectations accordingly, right? If we are <clears throat> expecting the process of cultivating intimacy to be easy and drama free, we are in for a rude awakening in marriage, right? The path of love is fraught with challenges that emerge both from within and without. We bring our own pain, our issues, and our insecurities with us into marriage, and then the pressures and challenges of living life in a fallen world create further obstacles to overcome. If we're going to cultivate and for that love to flourish in our lives, right, there are a lot of obstacles, there are a lot of distractions, there are a lot of challenges that we need to reckon with. And our poet here is talking about, he's trying to give expression to what that looks like in a marriage. But our author isn't nearly as interested in the obstacles as how the lovers respond to them. So he includes a question from the daughters of Jerusalem to set up our heroine's response to this fickleness of love. In chapter 5, verse 9, we read it right here, where the others here, if you have the ESV, or the daughters of Jerusalem, they say, what is your beloved? More than another beloved, O most beautiful of women, what is your beloved more than another beloved that you adjure us? Thus, what's the big deal about your man? I mean, why are you so lovesick for this guy? Why are you so desperate to find him? Uh, Why are you so sick with love? What's the big deal? And her response is going to reveal how love overcomes all obstacles, right? The poet wants to show us how we're to deal with the fickleness of love. Uh, the way we find ourselves too often like two ships passing in the night, uh, where we find ourselves frustrated in love. And our poet is going to give us some beautiful lines of poetry to help us find our way through. And so we read her response in verses uh, 10 through 16. She starts with a rather dreamy description of her lover. She works from head to toe describing him in soaring poetic language. Let's give it a listen here in verses 10 through 16 to tune your your ears to a little ancient Hebrew love poetry here. 
It's a little different flavor here. It's acquired, I will say. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water bathed in milk. There's an interesting line for you. Sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies dripping liquid myrrh. Lilies are going to come up again in our text. So we see his arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as sweeters. His mouth is most sweet and he is altogether desirable. Now, if that isn't a poetic description of a lover, I don't know what is. I mean, you don't get much more idealistic than that. Um, you know, this chiseled ivory, you know, guy, you're just like, wow. Like, and it's interesting. This is one of the few descriptions in ancient Near Eastern poetry of a man, right? Obviously, most of these long, flowery descriptions are of the beauty of the opposite sex. But here, in this text, we get one of those few and rare celebrations from our heroine, the protagonist, the main character in our story, celebrating uh, the attractiveness of her man. She's clearly smitten with his appearance, right? Which I take to mean that your spouse should be your standard of beauty. Your spouse should be your standard of beauty. Even the imperfections become endearing through the eyes of love. As she looks at her man, she sees sapphires and ivory and gold and all these rich resources. And you're like, clearly no one lives up to this beautiful, idealistic uh, picture that she's painted. And that is why it is so foolish that most men rule out 90% of women based solely on their physical attractiveness. Like, how, how foolish, how ridiculous. Physical attractiveness matters, and the song is not shy about celebrating it. We have some incredible descriptive language here in the song, but it's not the only word on the subject. Um, Some of our companion poetry in the uh, Hebrew scriptures, uh, Proverbs 31.10, reminds us that charm is deceptive, and beauty is vain, but the woman who fears the Lord, she is to be praised. So physical beauty is wonderful, particularly when it's seen through the eyes of love, but it requires something more for a relationship to be stained through all the agonies and challenges of love, right? It's not enough, right? When you encounter the challenges and difficulties in marriage, you go, well, at least my, at least my husband's hot, you know? <laughs> at least my husband's really attractive. Like, that, that, that'll get you somewhere, but like, when you're mad at him, when you're angry at him, when you've just had a fight, right? When you've just gone through the trauma of putting kids together and diapers are exploding and the house is a mess and there's a sink full of dishes, like, it's not going to be mere physical attractiveness that is going to get you through in the long haul in the adventures of love. What will get you there is this beautiful secret of love and our author comes to it here as the climax of our love poetry. If you're reading along with me, um, in, in chapter 5, verse 16, uh, we see this incredible description. And then in the second half of verse 16, this is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. I love that line. This is my beloved and this is my friend. You see, the secret of marriage ultimately, right, is 
friendship, right? This is the defiant response to our current lovesickness, right? A love that survives all the rigors of the married life cannot be based on mere infatuation. It must be built on deep friendship. And so here at the center of the song is this beautiful description, right? Not just of how beautiful her beloved is in her eyes and how much she loves him, but that there's this profound beautiful friendship that is pulsating at the heart of this relationship. So when things are off, when, when they're not quite aligning as a married couple, uh, when their desires are working in different ways, when the challenges come, right, there's something deeper to this relationship than mere physical infatuation, mere than physical beauty. There's a deep and profound and powerful friendship at the center of the song. And if you miss that, you're going to miss out on the kind of thing that keeps marriages together, uh, that's going to be the thing that's going to get you through those hard and challenging seasons, the difficult seasons in life. Um, Jamie and I have built a, a beautiful friendship over the last 17 years, but that friendship started off on kind of a rocky, rocky road. In seminary, uh, we were totally attracted to each other. It was definitely love at first sight, at least on my end. Uh, but we were so different, I wondered if we could find any way to bridge it. I'm the nerdy guy hanging out in the library, and Jamie is just out and about. You know, she's a woman of action. You know, she's like not into the, you know, being stuck in the library somewhere. She wants to be out there on the front lines doing things. And at one point in our relationship, in frustration, I blurted out these legendary lines. We wouldn't be friends if we weren't dating. I still kind of cringe today, even mentioning it, but I was just like, what on earth? Like, we have nothing in common. We're attracted to each other, but like, you know, I'm this nerdy, studious person, and you're like this really fun, full of life, get out there and get things done. And I'm like, how on earth are we going to make this friendship last? Um, But being in seminary together, we soon discovered that we were both dreaming very big kingdom dreams. I wanted to plant a church, and Jamie wanted to minister to girls who had been through some of the trauma that she had been through. And so we immediately uh, jumped bonded around ministry together. She helped me as a youth pastor working with all the girls, and I jumped in to help with her ministry to troubled teens. Um, And as we served together, as we spent time together, we found that not only our passions for ministry, but our personalities and interests aligned in some beautiful and surprising ways. And that our differences, when they weren't driving us crazy, were actually deeply complementary, right? She drew me out myself, right? And I was a little bit of the brakes to her kind of full speed ahead, you know, take the hill sort of thing, right? It ended up being a beautiful friendship. At the end of the day, um, you know, at the end of the day, I'd say 17 years later, right, there's no one I would rather spend the day with. I love uh, our Mondays right now. We get to go for a walk and spend time together just talking, unhurried time over a meal. Um, yeah, there's no greater friend that I have. And that friendship has been the thing that sustained our relationship and the ministry that we've been a part of. And so at the end of the day, it's not going to be good looks, but friendship It sustains your marriage and sustains your romance. The lovers in this song recognize and celebrate this crucial and often neglected aspect of a marriage. It's a beautiful opportunity to think and reflect as couples today. How are you building the friendship? How are you spending time together, uh, enjoying life together, sharing 
passions and, and values and sharing life and ministry and mission and uh, all of the interests that we have together. It's a beautiful invitation here in the song to this deep and beautiful, profound friendship that's right at the middle of all the steamy romance in the song is something deeper, this friendship underlying it all. So don't, so don't miss those words. Apparently, this passionate speech convinces the daughters of Jerusalem of the sincerity of our heroine's love because they offer to help her out in chapter 6, verse 1. And so um, these responses from the daughters of Jerusalem provide the transitions in our text. Uh, They say, where is your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where is your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? Right there, okay? All right, it seems like this relationship is no mere passing fling. This is no mere infatuation. Like, you guys really love each other. You're really friends. Like, this is a really deep, beautiful marriage relationship. We want to support you in it. And then she offers this uh, rather curious response in verses 6, 2 through 3. My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. On a surface level, we might ask, if her beloved simply went for a stroll in his garden, then why has she been wandering all over the city like a lunatic looking for him? Getting beat up by the watchman, and you're like, wait a minute, you just wait, your lover is like, he's in the garden? Like, what? <laughs> why have you been wandering all around the city? You know, why all these questions to the daughters of Jerusalem? Um, and why this incredible declaration, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. It seems like you two have just been two ships crossing in the night, right? You haven't been able to find him. You're desperate. You're sick with love. And then this strange response. Uh, so what's going on here in verses two through three? It appears, and most commentators agree, that she is either anticipating his return to the garden of love. Notice the similar language from last week's text or she is reminiscing about a particularly passionate makeup session in their marriage. The language of the garden and spices and grazing and lilies are all the language of intimacy in the song. After withholding her love back in 5.3, here in 6.3, she is either anticipating this return, right, or she's reminiscing about this beautiful makeup Uh, that is happening. And that's why she says, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. By the end of the poem, they've closed the geographical, emotional, physical, and social distance between them. And they're once again together. I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. What a beautiful ending to a, a fraught relationship. The drama, the tension, all resolved in this beautiful Uh, makeup session here in verses 6 through 2. The mutual claims they have on each other is picked up by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 5, maybe reflecting on this very verse. He says these words. I want to give it from the NLT translation because it just breaks it down into modern English. But Paul says this, the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. And the, the wife gives authority over her body to her husband and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. So do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterwards, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul wants Christian husbands and wives to make this refrain their own. I am my beloved's 
and my beloved is mine, right? We belong to each other, right? We, we in love, give, each, give of ourselves to each other. And Paul is drawing on this refrain to talk about the joys of marital love. So this is the tragedy and comedy, I want to suggest to you, of Christian marriage. Despite all the obstacles, despite all the distractions, despite all the interruptions, the awkwardness, despite all of our insecurities, Um, involved, if we keep pursuing each other, or if you keep pursuing your spouse in marriage, if you keep, seek to close the distance between you, you always have a chance to make up. If you do the due diligence, if you invest in the friendship, sooner or later, you will get to return to the garden of love. Uh, I love how C.J. Mahaney says this. This has always been a helpful word for me, particularly as a husband. He said, in order for romance to deepen, you must touch the heart and mind of your wife before you touch your body, right? There's work that needs to be done relationally, building the friendship, cultivating the relationship before you get to enter into the garden of love. And of course, uh, as we navigate the fickleness of love, it's going to require a sense of humor, right? Because of the very changeableness of our desires. It's going to require a rich culture of grace and will require constant reminders, right? That your happiness is forever tied together with the indestructible cords of covenant love. All of those things are what help create this kind of marriage, this kind of of intimacy, and ultimately these separations only make the reunions more sweet, right? Even the failures in love, even the agony, even the heartache, even the challenges all make just the reunions even sweeter. But there's another level at which we could and should read this text, this beautiful love poetry. The church has historically seen in this text a clear parallel between human romance and the divine romance. And the parallels are striking, right? Too often in our relationship with God, it seems that we are like two ships passing in the night. Like our heroine in the poem, we are often too comfortable to be bothered by the lover of our souls. And so we read in Revelation 3.20 of a different groom knocking at the door of his beloved. In Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, And opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Oh, the voice of our lover coming uh, to us, right, is what we see in Revelation. And Jesus said these words to a church that was lukewarm, right, neither hot nor cold. And Jesus, I'm going to spit them out, right? This is the church that had clearly lost its first love for Jesus. And like the beloved in the song, Jesus comes to the door and he knocks, but this church doesn't want to be bothered, right? Apparently, we can be fickle not only in romantic love, but in our love for Jesus. And even as a pastor, right, whose very career is reminding people of how much God loves them, I'm amazed at how fickle my own heart can be, how easy it is to take God's love for me for granted. In the same way that marriages can become stagnant and stale without proper attention to the friendship, our relationship with Jesus can become lukewarm, apathetic, and indifferent to the lover of our souls who stands at the door and knocks at the door of our our hearts. We could look at the whole story of the Bible through this lens, right? God created people for this beautiful relationship with himself in the garden. They walked with God in the cool of the day, 
uh, enjoying the intimacy and fellowship and sweetness of being with God. And, but yet, <laughs> the tragedy of the story, right? Adam and Eve broke that relationship with God in a quest for autonomy to do life on their own. And the rest of the story of the Bible is God pursuing his people in the midst of all of their suffering and sin, knocking on the door of their hearts, inviting them back into a relationship with himself, back into friendship with himself. And so all through the Old Testament, we see this pursuit. And yet God's people continually fall back into what the prophets call spiritual adultery. They're cheating on God, following after all these other lovers. But finally, God himself comes down in the person of Jesus to win a bride for himself at the cost of his own life, right? He died on the cross for all the ways we've cheated on him, for all the other desires that have captured our attention, all the other lovers that we have followed. Um, And he rose again to prepare for himself a bride in all her beauty without spot or without blemish. Jesus is the husband, right, we all need. It's his passionate pursuit that is the model for our marriages uh, that we see in Ephesians chapter 5. So, so don't be surprised when your spiritual life, like your marriage, requires work to cultivate that friendship. Don't be taken off guard by seasons when God seems distant or absent. Right? There are times when we drift away and times when God withholds his tangible presence and blessing for a season. But Revelation 3 reminds us that like the lover in the song, Jesus always pursues his church. If we open the door, Jesus promises to come and share a meal with us. And we're going to do that here. Just in a couple minutes, we're going to share a meal with Jesus. He wants to meet with us. Uh, It's his meal, and he's serving it up for us, his body and his blood shed for us. But first, let me close with just a few practical practical, uh, implications, applications um, that we could consider. Uh, First thing, if you're going to think about uh, living the song, singing the song, if your life is going to sing the song of songs this week, uh, first you're going to have to manage your expectations, right? Our love is fickle, it's subject to change, it ebbs and flows, it's ups and downs. Both in marriage and in our spiritual life, there will be agony, there will be pain. C.S. Lewis reminds us the only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. So, If you want to be in love, be ready for some pain. Be ready uh, to be hurt, right? Be ready for agony. That's all part of what it means to be a lover. And as we see God's heart, we know that it cost him his own son, right? His life on the cross for us. Uh, Second, you have a choice about what you're going to do with the agonies of love. You can use that pain um, as an incentive to help close the geographical, emotional, physical, and spiritual distance between you and your spouse to build a genuine friendship together, or you can let that agony drive you further apart. You know, get practical help if you need to, invite an older couple to walk alongside of you, but you must resist all the currents that would pull you apart, all the things that would break apart your relationship. And the same is true in your relationship with God. You can see the agony in your life as an invitation to receive more of God's presence and power, uh, to welcome him into your life as your friend, or you can let that agony drive you further away from God. And there are many here who would love to help you on that journey closer to Jesus, uh, the friend of sinners. Finally, always be ready for the makeup, right? The amazing grace that is always available in Christian marriages because of Jesus, um, 
means that there are always second chances. There is always the beauty of reconciliation. And those um, and these ecstasies, <laughs> there is always the return to the garden of love. And those ecstasies in the marital life, in the marital in marital love, are simply signposts to something even better. I want to close with an illustration from C.S. Lewis from The Four Loves, one of my favorite in the whole world. Love Lewis's treatment of, of love. And this is from his section on Eros. But he says these words here, uh, the event of falling in love is of such a nature that we are right to reject as intolerable the idea that it should be transitory. In one high bound, it has overleaped the massive wall of our selfhood. It has made appetite itself altruistic, tossed personal happiness aside as a triviality, and planted the interests of another in the center of our being. Spontaneously and without effort, we have fulfilled the law towards one person by loving our neighbor as ourselves. It is an image, a foretaste of what we must become, uh, what we must become to all of us if love himself rules in us without a rival. It is even well used as a preparation for that. Oh, that we would be a church filled with happy marriages pointing to love himself, that our marriages would be a demonstration of the wonder of God's incredible love for us, and that all the ways in which together we build and invest and work on that friendship, they would be pointers even beyond to the great love that God has for his children. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your love for us. Uh, We thank you for your grace that you extend to us in the messiness of marriage, uh, where there are diapers, where there are dishes, um, where there are not enough hours in the day, where there are children's, where there are jobs, where there are work. We thank you for your grace at work in our lives uh, to give us second chances, to bring us back uh, together, to build deep and lasting friendships that point Uh, just in small ways to your great love that you have for us. And so uh, would you continue to grow the couples here? Would there be great joy, uh, great marriages pointing forward uh, to the beautiful love that you have for us? And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.